which kind of did the rounds in some of the national newspapers. Um, she was walking along a line of soldiers, and the picture that caught people's attention was that in this line of soldiers was a Fijian soldier, and he was sat down, head bowed down before her. You see, uh, in Fijian culture, when they meet someone who has a place of authority, someone who exercises dominion, we might say, what they do is they sit down, cross their legs, bow their head, close their eyes, and they clap. And what happens was this Fijian soldier, this to him was the right way to honor the queen, the head of the country that he served. That is the way that they honor those who are in authority. Uh, when we look through the Bible, some of the, the key words for worship literally mean to bow down, to prostrate yourself before someone. And this is a, a physical gesture which recognizes someone as beyond, as above you, someone who transcends you. In this way, worshippers acknowledge the supremacy and the majesty of God. Now, I want us to go back to this Fijian soldier. And we saw him sitting down in front of the queen. And instead of looking at him, I want us to look through his eyes. Now, imagine you are this Fijian soldier. You've sat down, closed your eyes, bowed your head, and you've clapped. And I want you now to lift up your head and look in front of you. And imagine what it would be like if the queen had come down to your level and was looking at you eye to eye. If you can imagine that, that brings us right into the dynamic of this psalm. More than that, that brings us right into the dynamic of the gospel. The good news which is at the center of the Christian faith. And in this psalm, the God who is transcendent has condescended to us. Or we'll put it this way, the God who is enthroned high above all his creation stoops down to be with us, his people. Um, I'm here for the next couple of weeks, and we're just going to have a look at these two psalms together. Psalms 113 and 114. These are the first two psalms, and a little section of the psalms, uh, one of those kind of boring titles you get, they're called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. But what that means is these were a selection of psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. These six psalms were the ones that the people of Israel would sing during the Passover festival. They would sing these songs as they celebrated the Passover together. The Passover was a celebration, a reminder when God rescued his people out of backbreaking, hope-sapping slavery in Egypt, brought them into the promised land, but more than that, made them to be his very own people living in his presence. And these were the songs that they would sing these are the songs that they would sing. There's a little verse that you might skip over it if you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew or Mark. But both of them, there's this little verse where it reads this. They sung a hymn. And in all likelihood, it was one of these psalms that they were mentioning. These were the psalms that Jesus sung the nights before his death. And we did this series a few months ago in Montrose, and I titled this, 
the last hallelujah, the king's last hallelujah. For you see, the night before his death, he wasn't thinking what's going to be his last hurrah, but here he's singing, praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah literally means. It means to praise the Lord. And these were the words that Jesus was saying as he faced death. He is the one who said, praise the Lord, praise our servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. We've got two points tonight, if you're note takers. And our first point, as we look at this psalm, is this, praise our God. Now, here's a helpful tool for you when we're looking and reading the Bible together. This is a helpful tool for your Bible reading kit. And now it might seem obvious, but sometimes we really do just need to state the obvious. If you see a word repeated lots of times, it's probably important, isn't it? I think we can be pretty confident of that. You can think of it in these ways. You know, if I'm at home and I'm sitting on the couch and I'm uh, watching uh, Limerick winning the All-Ireland hurling final for another time, and I hear Kieran... And then a few moments later, Kieran. And then another few moments later, Kieran. And then another few moments, finally, Kieran. I know something important is about to happen. Have a look at me at these first few verses. Praise the Lord. Praise our servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Four times we see praised and we see blessed, which basically means the same thing here. We see this is the big theme here, is the call, the summons to praise God. But maybe we might just want to pause here for a moment. and I think this might be the kind of question that maybe some of you have had here before, or maybe you've just never thought, I don't want to ask this out loud, it doesn't sound the right thing for a Christian to ask, or maybe friends have asked this to you, before. Does God really need our praise? How might you answer that if somebody asked you that question? How would you answer the question, does God need our praise? Well, I would say this, no. No, he doesn't. But he certainly deserves it, doesn't he? That's what we're going to see as we work our way through the psalm. He deserves our praise for who he is and what he has done for us. But I think I might also want to push this in another direction and answer this slightly differently. He doesn't need our praise, but we need to praise him. We need to praise him. We need to give it because we are worshipping creatures As Augustine, that great doctor of the soul, said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There's a trajectory to our hearts. There's a compulsion to worship something, to honor something, to bow down before something. And only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who has called us, cleansed us, and claims us as his very own, only he when he is worshipped, can truly satisfy our hearts. But I want us just to focus on verses 2 to 3 for a moment. Um, Do you notice there's a little kind of sandwich here? Look at the beginning. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
at the end, the final line, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And this is kind of a feature of Hebrew poetry. Um, What they try to do is they do these little sandwiches with the idea of getting you to focus in on the middle. And what they're wanting us to see here in the middle is this. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, we worship an eternal God and praise for him should match his character, his nature. So this is a reminder to us. There isn't a time off that we have from praising God. So it's not a case of August the 21st, 2023. We're all going to have a day off. We're going to take a pause and we'll resume things the next day. No, we see here from this time forth and forevermore. But it's not just about time. It's about geography here. From the rising of the sun to its setting. You'll know the saying, won't you? The sun never sets on the British Empire. I'm sure that's not always going to be the case though, is it? But God rules over much more than the British Empire. God is the one who sits enthroned over his eternal kingdom. He is the one who sits enthroned over all of creation. And what we do and when we hear this and when we hear the summons and we join in, we are joining in with the praise of creation. As Psalm 19 says, all creation, all the heavens, all the earth declare the glory of God. And what we do when we join in this, when we praise the Lord, is we join in as the world was meant to be, praising the Lord. But what are we praising? There's a slight bit there, isn't it? Is blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. It sounds slightly strange to us. Why would we praise a name? Surely we'd praise a person. Surely we'd praise some acts. Why would we praise a name? And we had our second son earlier this year, and we were talking about what to name him. His name is Ruon Fraser Padder. Padder's just, um, we name them after different people. Padder is just Peter in Irish. But what we do is we impose meanings. We impose our own understandings on names, don't we? So if my wife were to suggest to me, why don't we name our son Oliver? I say, no, there was an Oliver I knew when I was seven and I didn't like him at all. He stole my pens. So that name's out forevermore. That's how we kind of think about names, isn't it? But here, names function differently. Names told us about the character of someone or their purpose. So Peter meant rock, that Jesus would build his church on Peter, on his confession that Jesus is the Christ. And the name of the Lord that we pray is this. You see, the, you see there, Lord, L-O-R-D, all in the capitals. Whenever we see that, that stands for Yahweh. That is his true name, Yahweh, which means that God says that I am that I am. I was what I was. I will be what I will be. Who God is, is always who he is. He is the eternal God. Nothing changes about him. This means that he is unchanging particularly in his character and his promises to us. He is the self-existent one. He is not dependent 
on us. The circumstances of this world don't change him. Who he was in eternity past is who he will be into the everlasting kingdom. He is the I am. And that is who we praise as we gather together as God's people Sunday by Sunday. But what we also do here is, if you've noticed this, we are inviting each other to praise him. And when we look through the Psalms, you'll notice as you work through the Psalms, there's four different directions that we sing. We sing to God. We sing directly to him. We address him. But also sometimes we sing to ourselves. So Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. Other times we'll sing songs to the nations and to the world. But here, often, we sing songs to one another, to encourage one another, to edify one another, to remind one another of the truth of who God is. Uh, Some of you will know we lived in St. Andrews for a number of years, and St. Andrews has an abnormal number of Americans um, in that town. Uh, And one friend in particular, what he would do to, to... see the reality of this idea of singing to others is when songs when we were singing to one another he would look around and try to catch people's eyes now you can imagine in a room full of British people everyone put their blinkers on and thought don't please don't that's really awkward I can't cope with that we'll see what you do later on but what we're doing is we are calling on one another not just to praise the Lord but look at where this psalm goes We are calling each other to see the incomparable God, the grace I am. We are saying to one another, who is like our God? Who is like him? This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening as we're looking through these um, verses 4 to 9. Who is like our God? And here's the big point for you. So if you're one of those note takers, write this down. This is the big point. God is both high and humble. God is both lifted up and lowly. God is both high and humble. God is both lifted up and lowly. We know this about God. God is most holy, most wise, most just. But the focus we see here is on his sovereignty and his majesty, his authority and his power. Look at verse 4. The Lord is high above all the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? God is supreme and transcendent. He is the one who looks down from the heights. This isn't a geographical descriptor. This doesn't mean that God is kind of beyond the moon. Or he's somewhere far beyond the Milky Way. No, this refers to his dominion and his authority. He is the one who is enthroned as the reigning king. No politician, no empire, no multinational corporation, no army compares to him. He is the one who is above and beyond and over all things. The question here really is rhetorical, isn't it? Who is like the Lord our God? How might you even answer that? Sometimes I make the mistake 
when I'm maybe looking at a video on YouTube or reading an article online of reading the comments below. Let me say, never do that. It's never helpful at all. But sometimes what I see is when I'm watching um, videos on rugby or something, and afterwards I'll look at some of the comments, and people will write, oh, this player entered into God mode here. And all I can think of that moment is, what a low view of God you have. What a low view of God that is. Uh, we tend to think that there's a spectrum, that God is up here and we're kind of somewhere around here. But that totally mistakes the, the biblical view of God. He's not even in our world. He's not even in our categories. God is beyond and above us. He is the creator. We are the creation. Who is like the Lord our God? No one. No one can compare to him. But look at this. The psalmist goes in a slightly surprising direction here, doesn't he? Verse 6. As we see, verse 5, he is seated on high, but he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. And that word there for looks far down, literally, it means that God humbles himself to look down. He abases himself. He lowers himself. He stoops. That's the way some translations have it, that God stoops down to see his people. God comes low. He enters into our mess. He's not a distant, disinterested deity, but he is intimately involved in the lives of his people. And we see this in verses 7 to 9. The psalmist here evokes stories and examples of God entering in and serving the lowly. And we see the language here. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Here he's evoking stories from the, the history of Israel. Like Joseph, who was taken from a hole in the ground, who was sold into slavery, who was put into prison, and ended up becoming one of the princes of Egypt. Or King David, who was the forgotten son, who ended up becoming the king of Israel. Uh, the language of verse 7 actually comes directly from the song of Hannah. The song of Hannah at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Hannah was abused by others because she couldn't have children. She was an outcast. She was seen and slandered as cursed. Yet God in his kindness met her in her pain and in her tears. And she ended up having a son, a son who was committed to be a great prophet of Israel. So what we see in these verses, and I think this is really important, I just want to clarify this and make this really hammer this home. What we see in these verses, these are not promises here. These are not promises for us. These aren't promises that each of us will become princes or princesses in the house of Windsor. What these are are pictures of God's grace towards his people. How he met his people who were down in the dust, in the ash heap, 
in the refuse of this world. Met his people and here are the reminders to us that he comes for us to meet us in our need and in our pain and in our affliction. So much of religion around the world is thinking that there is a ladder that we must climb up towards God. That in our own strength, grappling, we make our way up to him. But here's the wonderful good thing about the gospel, the good news of Christianity. God meets us in the grime. He meets us when we're face down in the mud. He meets us in the dust and in the ash heap and in the refuse. And have a look at that language there in verse 7. He raised the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Uh, the picture there of the dust and the ash heap, they're always to the floor. The dust is what gets stood in on the ground. The ash heap is what gets thrown out and forgotten. And here's this wonderful good news that God, the transcendent one, condescends to meet us in our pain and in our affliction. I've been on a bit of a quest recently about a lady called Josephine Butler. I feel like she's someone that most people don't know, but we as the church should really have a better idea of. Um, Josephine Butler lived in the 19th century during the Victorian period. Um, She came from a good background. Her father's cousin at one point was the prime minister. Um, She got married to an academic, but he ended up um, an academic in Oxford, lived there for a few years, then went to Cheltenham. But her husband then got a job teaching at a school in Liverpool. Now, if anyone here is from Liverpool, I don't mean to insult you, but Liverpool in the 19th century was not the kind of place that people went to climb their way up the ladder. But they went to live in Liverpool. And because of her deep Christian conviction, she saw the overriding poverty in that city. And one of the things she did was, seeing that, she asked around how she could serve. And someone said, maybe you could go into one of the women's workhouses. A workhouse was the very last place that you would be sent to. A workhouse was the place where if you couldn't make it on the streets anymore, that's where you were put into. And what she did was she went into that place, a well-to-do lady, and she met a group of women in that place and she sat down with them. They laughed at her at first thinking, what are you doing here sitting down in the dust with us? And what she did immediately is she started picking oakum with them. Their their job was to find the old ropes that were used in the shipyards. And they were to get in and try to find little bits of fiber that still could be used and sold on. It was hard work in the fingers. But she sat down with them and did the work alongside them. As time went on, she got to know some of the different women, and she got to know a lady called Mary Lomax. Mary was a girl who'd gotten into trouble. Her family had kicked her out. Um, She'd ended up on the streets of Liverpool when um, she contacted disease, and her brothel had then kicked her out. And on her first day there, she met Josephine Butler. Eventually, Josephine and her husband George invited Mary to come and live with her. What they did was they invited her into her home and they shared the good news of her, fed her, 
And what's really interesting, there's one story where Josephine's brother, husband, George, was talking to her about Jesus. And she said, you don't need to tell me about him anymore. He said, why? He says, well, I've met him. I've seen him. She says, sir, you have brought me into your beautiful home. You have treated me as if I was your own daughter, as if I had never done anything wrong. I have seen Jesus. Now imagine that and multiply it to eternity when the transcendent God comes and meets his people in the dust and in the ash heap. And throughout the Bible, in in numerous places, dust can be a reference to death. Like in Genesis 3, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. And that's the wonderful thing is that God meets us in the dust. But more than that, through his son, he meets us in our death as well. Let me go back to that passage I read as we opened up our service uh, together this evening from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us about Jesus and he tells us this. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself He lowered himself, he abased himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, Within um, the reformed tradition of the church, I'd like to talk about Jesus and his two states, his states of humiliation and exaltation. Now, when we think of the word humiliation, we immediately think of being embarrassed, don't we? uh, And that comes as part of what Jesus did, was that he was, when he went to the cross, he bore the shame that should have been ours. But humiliation has got a broader thing. It talks about being made lowly. It is going from the top of the ladder right to the very bottom and being buried below it. And that's what happens. That is what God does In Jesus, he stoops down to us and bears the cross in our place, suffers for our sins. He stoops down into death so that he might lift us up and bring us to life. Because you see, it's not just about Jesus going down, but it's Jesus coming up once more again. And as Paul tells us, um, in the letter to the, to the Ephesians, he says this, God's being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then listen to this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite shows is The West Wing. And there's a a wonderful story, uh, in a wonderful scene in the second series. There's a scene where uh, one of The West Wing is the story, it follows the staff in the White House, the staff of the president. Uh, And one of the staff, a a man named Josh, he gets shot while being with the the president. 
a number of months later, um, he goes to see uh, a psychiatrist who diagnoses him um, with PTSD. Now, he's really nervous. He doesn't want anyone to notice because he thinks that that then means he's going to lose his job. After meeting the psychiatrist, he walks out and his boss, the chief of staff, is waiting for him. And he tells him this story. He tells him this story. He says, there was a man and he was walking down and he fell into a hole. The hole was steep. The walls were muddy. There was no way to get out. And he shouts out, please, someone help me. Someone help me. A number of different people come by. A doctor walks by, throws down a prescription. A priest walks by, throws down a prayer. But then he sees his friends coming past and he shouts, Joe, will you come and help me, help me? And Joe jumps down into the hole with him and he says, what are you doing, you Egypt? Now we're both stuck down here. And his friend says to him, yeah, I know, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. This is the good news that Jesus has been where we are and he's been deeper. He knows where we have been and he has overcome it. This is the good news that God in Christ has stooped down to be with us, to see us, to know us, to show us the extent of his great love for us. And so it's this in mind that the psalmist then finishes. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Who can compare to him? Let us praise the Lord.